behind every great design, behind every great collection, there is a narrative. Try to get to know the narrative of that designer. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to You Have to Wear Something. Um, today, we have a lovely guest, John Fraser Carter, founder of Dio Artwear. Um, she is a clothing designer originally from Guyana, and she has lived in New York, my hometown of Chicago, and now she joins us tonight from Atlanta. Welcome to the show, Dion. Hey, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, you know, 2020 is not without its bumps and hiccups. Um, I've been doing these interviews uh, over the phone instead of meeting um, in person. So thank you for your patience and connecting. Oh, you're welcome. Sorry for all my technical difficulties on my end. <laughs> I'm not that no. savvy. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm just like, Twitch, what? TikTok, what? It's getting to that right. point where it's, like, it's tough for me as well. Um, so we're challenging ourselves all the time. It's going way too quickly. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get right into, um, you know, as artists, we are multi-passionate and uh, have a lot of different artists on here, visual artists and designers and stylists and things like that. And lately, a lot of political talk, too. It seems like it's all overlapping and interweaving. Um, but you were actually a musician first. Is that correct? Um, well, yeah, actually. Um, well, I've always been a, a, an artist, you know. So when I was younger, I used to enjoy writing short stories and poetry. And then um, later on at the end of high school, going into college, um, I did go into, I was in a few groups, um, both vocal groups and um, some hip hop groups. So yeah, yeah. my passion is, 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 sure. is music as well. Yeah, we're raised um, on hip hop. We're at this point, hip hop's like 40, 50 years old. So <laughs> basically all the next generations are all raised on hip hop, but we come from a good golden era. I think of like the yes. 90s to like early thousands good time yes it was yes. mumble rap yes yet it wasn't trap yet right <laughs> um your bandmate was a designer well right? actually one of my bandmates his wife was a designer so i was the only female member um in a group called la illa and this is in detroit um and so I, I never lived in new york my father lives in lived oh, in new york okay. when he came to america he's settled in New York and so and I had a lot of relatives who came when they came over from Guyana they settled in New York as well so um, when my family came to the States I would spend you know Christmases you know um, and some you know a couple weeks in the summer in New York so I didn't live there but I did you know spend quite a bit of time there every other year or every year you know for a long time so Thank you for correcting me. I like to like still be a, a, a real journalist with the facts. Yes. Like, actual, actual and facts yes. here on you have to wear something. Um, so, and so, so how I got to Detroit was um, I went to, to college at Eastern Michigan University. And so that's when I, I, you know, I met a friend of mine and he was listening to some poetry and then invited me to um, Detroit to to meet some of his band members. And he's like, 
you know, your poetry is dope, but that sounds like hip hop, you know? And so um, he was like, that would sound great yeah, over some beats. I mean, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where it all started. And so I started going to Detroit from that note. And um, one of my bandmates, his wife was a fashion designer and um, her name was Azai and she just created the most beautiful garments and I was just in awe of her work and so basically um and my background as a designer I'm self-taught and again I said you know I was always um involved in the arts my grandmother used to sew so as a child as a little bitty child I would always come and bring fabric for her a whole fabric while she was taking you know ripping ripping apart seams and you know I'd be the one right there so I always saw that sewing machine and you know um so that was my very first introduction as a young child watching my grandmother but then as I got older everything just kind of fell into place and so um we were talking earlier and I was telling you that summer it just so happened that my grandmother had given me this like 22 volume set of books and they were like encyclopedias for arts and craft work so there were things you know you you would learn how to sew and do macrame and um, needlepoint and crocheting and knitting and all of those things and so I had split the books with my you know new friend Azai at the time and we just kind of retaught ourselves some new techniques and that's basically where it all started. Okay, and um, so just for those that don't know, would you just your background and, and be your ancestry as Caribbean or West Indian? Um, well, kind of both. You know, Guyana is actually the only English-speaking country in South America, so it's actually on the continent of South America. However, um, it is considered a Caribbean country, you know, um, as far as our dialect we speak Creolese which is similar to like a Jamaican Patois and so all of our um, all of our traditions and um, culture events kind of mirror all of the other islands um, all over the Caribbean so um, and, and, and our country is made up of um, you know original Africans and East Indians um, and Chinese, you know, or Asian, you know, that's, that's the primary makeup of our, the people on our country. Yeah. Right, right. We are not minority. <laughs> yeah. Uh, contrary to popular belief, because when you, when you were talking to me about your grandmother's making doilies and just knowing craft yeah. work in general, this is the part that I think a lot of um, African Americans, Black people in America feel missing, even though you know like you said at the time you were like I don't want to learn like these old crafts but when you grew up you got more in, in it and that's the thing I, I want to know what village made the you know Wolofos and <laughs> you know Senegal or or whatever right you know, whatever that craft was that goes back to my elders and my ancestors but that part has been cut off from a lot of right. Americans so we're like hungry for that tradition we're starved of that yeah. and so I just think that that's just such a good part to kind of keep traditions going and knowing who you are and where you came from through the art it, it, it exists in the work yeah yeah absolutely um in, in terms of my body of work I use I tend to use a lot of bright colors and um and all of those things are completely reflective of 
where I come from, you know, in the Caribbean is a lot of color, you know, the houses are very colorful. We have all of those exotic parrots and birds and things like that, all the different fruit trees and all the different flowers. And, you know, so I, I just naturally, it's not something that I really set out to do. It's just something that naturally came through, um, you know, the work. And so, um, you know, so I always, once I realized that that was happening, I always kind of give reference um, to that as well. Okay, and then, um, you know, craft and being a seamstress, things like that, these things are highly regarded on the runway, luxury designers, contemporary designers, and I'm pretty sure I probably bought like a bikini that was crocheted from Betsy Johnson, like, you know, take or something like that. These things right. come, they go, and they, they're cyclical, you know, and they always come back. How do you feel about how companies, maybe an LVMH or like a Kieran Group, how all of their subsidiaries, all of those brands um, outsource this work, usually from Asia, Africa, and then there's this like huge markup once it hits the runway in the stores in America. What, what thoughts at all do you have about that things that were traditionally, honestly passed down for free from, you know, your, your grandparents? And then now it's like, it's marked up over 300%. Do you feel like this can be construed as exploitive or what are your thoughts? Well, um, I feel two different ways about that. On the one hand, you know, well, when I'd like to see um, designers from the diaspora incorporate these things into their designs and I'd like to see us make the money off of it. Um, I remember a few years back, I can't remember um, the year, but I think it was spring, it was a spring uh, Moschino fashion show that I had seen and their whole entire line um, for that year, it was like crochet. And I can't remember, I think like um, Kylie Jenner or somebody had wore something at Coachella and it was like a crochet top and then it was all on the runways and everything. And I was just looking at this stuff like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's dope that it's, that it's here on the runway. However, I was immediately hit with that sunken feeling like, you know, this is our work, <laughs> you know, this is our work. And, and it did, you know, and it does kind of make me upset sometimes when I see that, because I know that um, we're not getting the recognition. It's not, not only are they outsourcing the work and paying, you know, pennies on the dollar to produce these, these, you know, crafts and these beautiful bodies of work and these full collections. Um, but I really, I'm not, convinced that even the the people that are creating these garments are really getting full recognition for their work or really getting um, compensated at a living wage and even more than a living wage because it, it's total artistry and the majority of the work is one of a kind you know it's handcrafted work and um, if you compare to you know, some cobblers or some other artists, you know, um, on the streets of Europe, I'm sure that they would be a very disparaging uh, <laughs> gap <laughs> between the two. Yeah, you know? I know. Like um, Dapper Dan, he always says, you know, we make the culture, but then they profit off the culture. Right. And, you know, that's why he was such a big part of 
the change makers program at Gucci where yeah. they're literally getting textiles from Nigeria and things like that and it's like a four part I looked at the plan I'm usually you know skeptical of these type of initiatives yeah. because they come and they get started but you never see the result of it like is it really working and it seems to be uh, one of the most um, proactive and prolific programs that I think Gucci and any other you know designer has ever had where you're really really going to the source recognizing them acknowledging them and giving them not just a shout out but like the money the profit right you know sharing the profits right and so um I love that no matter how long it takes and I, and I think for us specifically I think like black people identify as black things take the longest with us right yeah. I think things like take long you know because we are not at the top of the capitalist pyramid you know we are like you said the ones that are creating it for pennies on the dollar and and or the idea and then you see the new hip-hop style go down Moschino's runway right and it's like right right Adidas and hats backward and you're like oh this came from somewhere it came from poor kids you know right. poor black and brown exactly. kids and communities and so um I think that people are are that but it's so far gone that a lot of work is going to also take time now to reverse it and um, right I love and really and, and even in and yeah I'm sorry not to cut no, you, go but ahead, I was go just going to no, say that well I, I was going to say yeah I was going to say that um you know in addition to that it's not just about you know, it coming full circle. You know, Dapper Dan's, uh, the initiative that he's supporting, um, it's really his own rise and fall, if you will, that it came through, you know what I mean? It was the outcry of the people, you know, that was like, yo, Dapper Dan started this and blah, 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 that, you know, Gucci just really couldn't like look away, you know? Um, Correct, yeah. Because it was too big. So they had to, you know, um, give props where props was due but I think the fashion industry as a whole I think things are just now um I think it's happening because they're being called to the carpet you know like let's let's call it what it is you know um these fashion houses have been fashion houses for you know 100 years some of these you know what I mean and so it's like all of this time has passed where all of these ideas and designs have come uh, from the diaspora and there has been no acknowledgement, no nod, no compensation, no nothing. And I think quite frankly, things probably would have gone on another 50 at least years before we really started getting recognition had it not been for the lines being blurred um, between what has been political what has been economic, what has been the blatant, you know, murders (laughs) that have taken place this year in the streets. And so now everybody's, you know, in an uproar. And so they have to look at themselves, but they didn't do it on their own. (laughs) You know what I mean? They didn't do it on their own. (laughs) Like like, like Gucci definitely got spanked by Black Twitter and, you know, social media and the literal like receipts that people came out. And I love that about Gen Z, like, thank God for social media. The behavior is not new, right? With like the chokeholds, you know, the police brutality. It's just the cameras that are new, right? right? That are documenting it more frequently. People are like, oh my God, it seems like someone's dead every week. No, people were dying weekly. We just didn't know it. We were living in our cities, our bubbles, Mm -hmm. and 
and our, you know, our economic classes and not really noticing or, or hearing about it because, you know, the media is controlled by you know who, not us, you know. And right, so yeah. I do like the democracy in social media and what that means for us. So, and still it's messed up. It's like, you think about like Elaine Welch-Roth and she was the editor of Teen Vogue and there hadn't been a black editor like Condé Nast like you said right. a hundred yeah. year old company and she is the only black editor of their magazine for the last 40 years and then it was just Andre Leon Talley who was an editor at large right. for Vogue and bef- right. those two, that's it that's literally it I think this right. year they definitely put a few more women of color in positions of power but it it, it was more like all these companies came out and said they stood in solidarity with the black community, but then their form like, don't try it. That's a lie. Right. Exactly. Like, when I worked there, it was horrible. So, right. um, I wanted to chat with you just for your short time that you were in Chicago. And just so everyone knows in Chicago, you know, there's like Neiman's and Saks and all that good stuff. Oak street is like the premier block right there. You have, you know, yeah. off that kitty corner, there's Chanel, there's Hermes, yep. there's the, the yeah. Drake Hotel, you know what I'm saying? So that's like mm-hmm. the, there's like one percenter shop, their Prada's there. And you worked right. on Oak Street for a black designer. Yeah. Um, tell me a little yeah. bit how that came to be and how that felt. Um, well, it was an awesome experience. Um when I was, let me see, I got to Chicago in uh, the end of 1999. And so I officially started my brand uh, in 2000. And so um, at that time, you know, I'd been making things for friends and uh, family and things of that nature. And then I really set out to put together a cohesive collection and, and see what I can do. And so as a young designer in Chicago, I had my portfolio together and I would just go hit downtown and I would just go kind of shopping and knocking, you know, boutique hopping and looking around and seeing who would take a chance on a new uh, on a new designer, you know, see where um, where I could possibly place my work and things like that. So happened upon this little boutique on Oak Street, it was called Aka, which stood for All Custom Attire. And I went in there and there was this woman that with this bubbly personality, um, Darlene DeMarco, and she was awesome. And she was just like, she was just fabulous. You know, um, everything about her was just so cool and inviting and warm and, you know, and she was just on it. And, and Darlene said to me, I remember at the time, uh, she had some Gigi Hunter, I think, uh, was the new hot designer at that time um, in terms of doing knitwear. And so Gigi was doing everything for all these celebrities and stars. And so um, Darlene carried some of her line. And so she, you know, took a look at my portfolio and she said, okay, your stuff is really, really nice. And she was asking me if I, you know, use different fabrics and so on. I said, yeah. She said, okay, I tell you what. She said, make me this dress. She pointed that picture piece out of my portfolio. She said, make me this dress. 
um, but I need you to make it in this thread. You know, I was much higher end than I was working with at the time, but she said, you know, just being comparable to Gigi, she said, make it in this, you know, find me some silk yarn or something else and make it and I'll put it in the window. And she said, if I get a response, you know, from people who see it in the window, then I'll carry your line. I'll give you an opportunity. Um, so said, so done. You know, I, I set out and I made the piece and I brought it back to her. She put it in the window. She got a buzz and that's where our relationship started. Now, this was the first time. This was early on. This was around um, 2000 and um, maybe around 2002 at this time. And which so I feel like I was, was able yesterday, to... but let's mm-hmm. let's continue. I'm like that wasn't yesterday. Yes, <laughs> so, <laughs> but go on. So, Time flies. So, yeah. So she. So that was. Um. You know, that was the first opportunity. Since then, I was also. Um, uh, a stay-at-home mom at that time and I was raising a family and my family was expanding at the time so um, I was able to put you know a few pieces in the boutique at that time years passed I you know was expanding my family and I had a girlfriend who worked on uh, Oak Street as well she was working at Art and B and she bumped into Darlene and this is at this time we fast forward to 2006 and so that run when I had pieces in Oak Street had come and gone and you know and so uh, my girlfriend called me. She said, you know, Darlene's trying to get in touch with you. And I said, I, you know, really, you know? And I said, okay. And so she gave me her information and uh, we, you know, Darlene, we got in touch with one another. And Darlene, she said, um, look, I want you to come down and be my partner. And I was like, what? At that time, I'm like, well, Darlene, you know, I just had a baby. Yeah, I don't have any money, you know, yeah. all that kind of stuff, right? And she said, she said, did I ask you for any money? And I said, no. And she said, um, she said, but you have sweat equity. She said, are you still doing your design and are you still doing your work? And I said, yeah, I had. And so um, she said, okay. She said, you're gonna come down here. She said, I'm gonna give you keys to the shop and you're gonna come and be my partner and we're gonna run this thing. And I was just kind of like blown. So even then I didn't really understand what was about to happen you know and so I gathered myself together and my son at the time I just had my son and I would bring him down to Oak Street with me and from there for two years we rocked it out and it was the most amazing experience and she taught me so much about um you know I was uh, about selling to luxury uh clientele you know um that that five percent so we were doing fur coats for dogs and we were you know as a designer I was able to grow um because at that time I was pretty much just doing you know my crochet work I do so as well but I hadn't really been doing that a whole lot so when I got down to Akka we did a lot of garment reconstruction um we did a lot of customization and it was just wonderful it was a wonderful and that is what you call you know? an ally people when you see another woman even regardless of ethnic background the first thought should be sister no, yep. don't say yep. sis to me and and then like hey sis can i get a drink started for you in starbucks we're not sisters until you like show up for me like don't just throw the slang around really right. really mean it don't just lock arms with us at the women's march like this woman showed up for you and stepped up for yeah. you in an environment that frankly i would even argue is anti-black like chicago is extremely segregated i spent a lot yeah. of time on michigan avenue at different 
uh, you know, gigs and jobs and things like that. All kinds yeah. of jobs. Working at Bendles and Gap. Yeah. And, uh, Chicago place. You know what Chicago place is. And yeah. um, mm-hmm. the vibe is like you're a visitor, you know, even though you've been generations there. And even with all these protests, they'll raise the bridges. That's how easy it is to separate the wealthy from working class in Chicago. It's just a matter of raising the bridges over the, you know, Chicago right. River. Yeah. And so you were yeah. literally in like the premier area of like one percenters. And yeah. um, were there any moments at that time on Oak Street where you feel like Darlene had to kind of protect you or step up for you like with clients or was it separate like did you feel like the client she had like a good black clientele and then you know there was a different white clientele or did she just have people from all over well what I realized and I learned during that time I learned about the the history of Chicago and being you know segregated as it was and you know I'd heard these stories but I still didn't know and and until you get with the with the born and bred Chicago one to really explain to you the history of the city, you really can come in there and just not know and really just be enamored by the magnitude of the big buildings and the wide highways and, and the culture and the history. But, you know, Chicago, yeah, it, it, you know, they, I was really surprised about um, the history. Um, as far as um, whether or not she had to protect me, I don't know that she, I don't think she had to protect me, but she did definitely school me. And that is when it wasn't even so much um, a black and white thing. What I learned in dealing with the, uh, you know, 1%, quote unquote, um, when you start getting in a higher tax bracket, it's not even about race, it's about class. And that was when I got my first lesson in class, (laughs) and so um, she taught me um, about uh, just how, number one, that I deserve to be on Oak Street, regardless of how new I was, regardless of how black I was, regardless of wherever, you know, um, my work spoke for itself and I deserve to be there. And so one thing, you know, I was a little intimidated when I first began working with her because, again, you know, I was around, um, you know, people and, and, and uh, that were just beyond, you know, anything that I could ever, you know, have fathomed at that time in terms of what my reality of life was at the time versus what I was coming into um, downtown and experiencing every day. You know, sometimes the things about working with clients that are in the quote-unquote upper echelon that have a lot of money um, sometimes I realize that you know money can't buy happiness <laughs> because oh, it's um, not we, you know we I had mean, they have oh my they goodness have, they have different problems yeah I mean we we had clients that would come in and just would sit because we you know it was a high-end you know luxury boutique so we would serve champagne and you know strawberries and things like that just on a daily you know and so you have uh, clients that would come in and just spend hours and spend a lot of money but they just wanted to come and talk they just wanted to come and and see what was new see what you know creativity and process looked like 
you know, um, and then there were other clients who, because they felt like they were spending, well, if I'm going to spend $2,500 to $5,000, I can talk to you any kind of way, or I can, you know, treat you any kind of way. So I experienced that. And interestingly enough, I experienced that from black clients and white clients. Of course. You know, yeah. So all you, you, the, yeah. It does, work, <laughs> it does happen at that level. Um, you know, it costs nothing to be nice, but I, I feel like a lot of, and, and some people say there's like a lot of new money regardless of race they're like filling themselves they're self-made they made yeah. it and they yeah. want to show off and and I, I found that some of like the wealthiest old money people were the chillest they're like relaxed yeah it's yeah no big deal they have like yeah. manners you know what I'm saying yeah and, and that's yeah. what I have always experienced is just the people who have the most money they have nothing to prove and so they're way more right. laid back so I just was curious as to because I've had just a lot of, you know I feel like you and I were probably just a few feet away from each other during this time we yeah. just didn't know each yeah. other and, <laughs> yeah um, absolutely we're having, like these similar kind of dual you're creating and I'm like selling you know and yeah. dealing with um these 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 wild clients but I always like to hear about that I like to hear about other you know women lifting other women up sisterhood being promoted and practiced and um I'm glad that you had a positive experience and a great example of like a black businesswoman because you know if you look at the numbers less than like one percent not even a full one percent of black women are getting funds for their business to this day in 2020 it's really outrageous like we are not yeah even in the percentage a full one percent of getting you know business loans and uh venture capital funds Absolutely. and things like that and i, I yeah. just find that ridiculous so when you say she had a shop on oak street really truly that's an an anomaly that's not the norm um yeah so you i i looked at your designs crochet oh my god there was there was this moment where everyone was knitting you can remember it in the mid mid aughts when everyone's like the yes. you know bitches that stitch and the stitch bitch and all right. that kind of stuff people were, <laughs> people were knitting yeah. on the plane and then that kind of went away but people were getting together to knit and stuff like that and you know how to do do all of that i cannot do all that so i know that is difficult what is it that you like about your creations being a designer and the business and then right after that I'm probably going to ask you what you don't like but first I would like to hear <laughs> what you like about it well I just love um the creative process um you know I I like um the idea of making something out of nothing. I like the idea, especially when it comes to my crochet design, because I don't use patterns. And unlike, you know, traditional designers, again, being self-taught, um, there's a, a particular freedom that comes with that. And so um, I don't, I'm not plagued with all of these uh, rules inside of my head that I have to follow and these parameters that I have to design within um, because I learned differently and my creativity um, and design work kind of evolved over time um, I've and because I've always considered myself to be an artist that's actually how I approach my design so I don't approach my my work from 
uh, designer's perspective, I approach it from an artistic perspective, which means that ideas just come to my head. Um, I don't use patterns. Um, I, in fact, uh, on the crochet tip, I don't even try, you know, like I think, you know, specifically so that I want to keep my designs authentically one of a kind. So even if a client comes and says, you know, I want to get this dress in these colors, you know, and I've done one before, the one, the new one still wouldn't be exactly like the first one because I don't use patterns um, specifically so that everyone can have an original piece of art that they can wear. Um, so that that aspect, I love it because you just never know what you're going to get. When I start off my work, I might start, you know, with a piece of fabric or, or, or um, a particular skein of yarn. And I start off and I have one idea in my head. And then midway, if I make a mistake or midway, um, I'm inspired by something else. I'll turn that piece of fabric or I'll turn, you know, what I've done so far upside down or inside out and start creating from that point. You know, so again... Um, even the work in progress is you just never know what you're going to get. And so that's awesome for me. It's exciting for me um, just from that beginning process all the way to the finished you know, product. I love putting a finished piece on a model or a mannequin or a happy client. Um, and, and then it comes to life for me. Then I can see it. And, and I just love that whole aspect of it. What um, don't you like? about being a designer or being in the business or even being an artist? Um, I don't like maybe the pressure of um, having to do things within a particular mm -hmm. time frame or again, if there are any specific parameters. Um, so with that being said, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, over the years I've been approached to do different projects and then I have to say, well, I'm not a seamstress, right. um, <laughs> you know, or a tailor that where, you know, you have in your head and you can produce things to the T using those specific measurements and using those specific rules you know and so it's really difficult for me to create from that perspective some things that I can but most of the things I don't and I don't like it just because you know I don't like things that are in a box yeah <laughs> you know um, um I don't like the aspect of comparison where you know you you include one particular design element and they don't and all people do is focus in on that particular design element and they compare it to you know other things that they've seen or other designers that they've seen or who, who might be bigger or more known for that and then they kind of group you in um so that's the that's the aspect that I really don't like um because you know creativity is the kind of thing that is open-ended you know it comes from the ether <laughs> and and we kind of interpret it the way a composer you know composes notes and transcribes them you know but where do they come from you know they come from somewhere and and artists that's what we do you know whichever medium whether it's a visual artist or or a fashion designer or an architect you know you get these downloads and then it's your job to interpret it and make it come to life bring yeah. it to fruition um and so that process it's it's very organic and so when people start placing rules and and all of these things on it you know it just becomes it makes things um 
you know, yeah, just more, more difficult. So that that's an aspect that I don't like. Be, yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, designers have been complaining about the you know designer schedule for years, and I think the COVID year was finally the final nail in the coffin. Even Tom Ford <laughs> complains about, yeah. you know, we got to turn around these collections so quickly. There's a lot of pressure, yeah. you know, that you got to create a trend. You got to create a whole, you know, campaign, marketing, advertising, all of that. And even for a small business, it's like to keep it going, especially in a year that that's so challenging. Um, they're now speaking about yeah. doing away with all of those deadlines, right? Because no one wants you have people trying. You're trying to get people to buy coats in the in the summer and buy bikinis in the winter, right. and, and you know, and it, it's just right. things aren't like that anymore. You know, this is why fast fashion is so popular because it's like they knock it off so fast and it's readily available so quickly that they're they're not on they right. schedule a long time ago so this year right. in terms of your work and your design um what if we ever come out of lockdown what would you like to see happen because when i think about crochet beyond clothing you could make like a crochet bush and it could end up in MC I mean there's very there's no limit <laughs> to what you can do when you're just kind of a creator would you ever go into more of like a finer art space or what would you like to see happen um well for me as a designer I I, I definitely want to go uh wherever it goes <laughs> I'm just open to it you know and I you know again I, I approach my work from an artistic perspective so I see myself more as a conduit or a um you know a portal for which the work just kind of comes through and so um I have other interests in home decor um I have you know I would like to do some more um textiles and tapestries and um to do some more arts based um, projects um, and in 2018 I kind of expanded my designer hat to entrepreneur and I opened up my own uh, brick and mortar and so um, and it's called Zana Artistic Retail and it's basically a house for not just my body of work but also other creatives and artists and designers uh, to showcase their work in an aesthetically sound space, um, uh, a space where I, I have it set up kind of as an art gallery. So if you were to go visit, you know, here, um, it, we have the High Museum in Atlanta, um, in Chicago, you know, you have the, the, the famous art museum. And so when you walk into the museum and you go into each exhibit, you know, that's kind of how I have it set up in my space. Um, so it's a curated, um, uh, cohesion of artistry you know when you walk through the doors you're looking at the ceiling and there are words on the floor and there's each artist collection and next to their collection is a little plaque with their um, who they are their story um, because I wanted to create a space over all the years I've met so many amazing designers but you know they weren't really showing their work at a level that you know, they were really happy with as well as really kind of getting the the price points 
that they wanted. You know, a lot of times our community, we are, because there's such a disconnect between us and the industry at large, um, as a community, we're kind of left to showcase our work um, at the marketplace, you know, and which is nothing wrong because, you know, historically from the continent, you know, that's where all the business goes down. However, in this new day, the issue that I have with the marketplace is that, and really the marketplace is the perfect evolution for a new creative, you know, um, new artist uh, or creative entrepreneur. Um, however, at the marketplace level, um, there's some things that take place. Oftentimes when people are coming through and they see your work presented in the marketplace, they want to see, well, can I get a discount? You know what I mean? Because you're at a table under. A yeah, table, stop you know. asking. Um, the work is the same. Stop asking artists, <laughs> women, people of color, please stop haggling us because probably whatever you're asking yeah. is already fair. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's and it's hard, and so you know, I started there. You know, when I was in Chicago, I remember doing the um, yep. I did the Marley Fest, and I would do the African mm-hmm. Festival of the Arts, and you know, all those festivals in between all throughout the summer, and it was great. You know, as an artist, when you're you know you're just starting out and you're trying to, um, because that you know the marketplace is also great promotion because you get to see and touch your client, um, you get direct feedback, you know, on your work. But then when you're doing it for 10, 20 years and, you know, and your work has gotten better. And so now it's no longer, you know, $50. Now it's $150. And now, you know, 10 years later, it might be $200 or $300. And well-deserved because you've put in those 10,000 hours. You're now an expert at your craft, you know. And so just in that platform, um, you know, I don't like the, the fact that artists get haggled or people kind of um, have this idea that because it's in the marketplace, um, it's not as um, the same quality or it doesn't have the same, uh, you know, it doesn't have the oh, same connotation I as it know. does if you were, I mean, are to walk in the I mean, people, mall <laughs> and get it, you know? They're going to Yves Saint Laurent, Alexander McQueen and all yeah. that, Gucci, Louis right. Dior. They're not haggling those people. They're trying to flex and they pay the prices right. and they never want to ask for a discount. They do that. We do that to each other. And um, I think more than anything, even like um, um, Suze Armand, she wrote a book, Women and Money. It was so cool because there is a yeah. certain money story that I think all women kind of grow up with and it it could be anyone from any background but women are also a little bit more pressured to um give things away for free or give things at a discount or help you out like if your girl does nails or hair um you you know instead of paying her 65 or 75 you know you're paying her a little less than what her prices are and she doesn't give you any pushback and 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 Susie Suze is like don't do that like your prices are your prices women are already present in this society at a discount and if you're a woman of color that's like a double discount so there's no reason for you to discount your work you know and it makes people value you more and also consistently she said she had girlfriends 
who like cut hair and stuff and after a couple of years she's like hey you know Mary you need to raise your prices and like you said over time as you perfect yeah. as you become um, an expert in your craft you also have to raise your prices and so that's a really that's a really good point right to, to bring up especially for um solopreneurs entrepreneurs startups small business yeah. guys stop like you know that's not the people to have right. you would never do that in the grocery store you would never do that in a restaurant absolutely you would never do that to the high-end brands it, absolutely and the thing about it is if you have an artist that's actually making something and coming out to the marketplace or wherever um that money that you're spending I promise you it's going to like some lessons <laughs> you know for a child it's going to some school fees it's going to a light yeah, bill it's going to you know that. it's directly helping absolutely you know and people don't really consider that you know and so um so yes yeah, so I set up my space to operate you know as a collective and then um we expanded actually last year um in 20 19 uh to a gallery we were able the space next door became available and so we converted that into um a gallery space and so um so where we showcase visual artists every 30 to 45 days and we also rent that space out for um intimate events or pop-ups for other creative entrepreneurs to come through and um you know sell their wares or do classes or workshops or you know just what have you but um and so that is something that has uh, really reignited my passion for entrepreneurship and not just artistry, but just, you know, just the whole vibe of cooperative economics and us really coming to the forefront and taking ownership of our businesses, taking ownership of our money and financial um, responsibility and education, um, you know, all of these things. So all of these things are really, really important to me. And, you know, my goal is to master this model and then to duplicate it um, and on other continents, but specifically showcasing um, artists and designers of color um, yeah, and creative um, entrepreneurs. Well, first, let me just say congratulations on this progress in Georgia with it becoming blue congratulations y'all did that Um, (laughs) that was black women that was Stacey but that was so many other unnamed you know people of color native indigenous uh black and brown communities that that turned a traditionally red state blue and it was it was really by like a slim margin and so um Georgia's hot right now tell people how to Fine. Yes. <laughs> you, your space, anything you want to say about your your Insta or or this, you know, art space. How can we find you? Yes. So, um, so um, I can be found at Dio Artwear on Instagram. Um, that is for my individual brand, um, the fashion brand, and then also I can be found at Zana Artistic Retail on Instagram as well. We also have a website uh, for the shop. It is www.zanaartisticretail.com. And um, I just wanted to to circle back really quick. Um, You touched on something earlier just about women supporting um, one another. And I must say that I could never, never 
uh, deny the support that I have had over my entire career. Black women have showed up and supported me. Black women have inspired me. Black women have um, shared information. So that whole notion of black women can't work together or we, you know, uh, we're catty or we're eyeballing each other. And that has not been my experience. And I really want to just to say that and put that out there because Zana, the name of my business, it came from an idea when I was in Chicago with uh, five or six of my sister friends. And we came together and, and thought about a way to support one another, you know, support our creative endeavors. And so that was how the name Zana came about. It means uh, beauty and adornment in Arabic. And also, uh, you know, so these were women that I work with who were just dope in their own rights. You know, I had sisters who were doing um, an art and events planning company, sisters that were in advertising, sisters that were, you know, in interior design and other areas of art. And we came together to support one another. Fast forward to my life, um, just even, you know, when I had jobs, they were for Black uh, women or Black couples who were entrepreneurs who taught me how to run a business. So, you know, I didn't go to school. I don't have a business degree. So, you know, I didn't go to college for that. It's something that just kind of came about and my steps were ordered because I really had people who just showed me the way and unapologetically. Um, you know, I had a story when I first opened the shop. I had, um, you know, I'm a mother of six children. Um, I went through a divorce in uh, 2018. Um, last year, this time last year, well, maybe around October, you know, I had hit a rough spot and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where the money was coming from. And I was really going through a rough, rough time. Um, there is a sister named Pinky Cole, who is the owner of Slutty yes, Vegan I know Slutty Restaurant. Vegan. And um, you, Slutty Vegan, some of There you go, guys. Because I was going to say, vegan. how do you, so how do you when, um, <laughs> Yes, it's right across the street from... So Zana is Z-I-N-A-H and it's artistic retail. Yeah, so it's Zana artistic retail. But literally, um, you know, when Slutty Vegan opened, um, my ex-husband at the time, we saw her, she was vending at a festival um, that one of my girlfriends happened to be the founder of this thing called the Veggie Taste. Um, a, a, a really sister, you know, a sister that just goes hard for the community um, by the name of Naime. So Slutty Vegan had a booth, you know, and my ex-husband, um, at, you know, at the time he was like, yo, you know, maybe you should see about getting, you know, sharing the information about the restaurant because there was a vegan restaurant that was across the street that had come and gone. And so the space was available. And so I had never met the sister at all. In fact, she had a line at the festival that day and I couldn't wait in line because I had to get back around the corner to the boutique. But, um, I, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. So I we made a phone call that night uh, and I told her the information for the landlord and, you know, what she needed to have. Um, as far as paperwork and presentation, and they set up the meeting and the meeting actually took place for her to get the restaurant across the street. This That's was a whole works, like year ago. So fast forward to this time, and then fast forward to this time last year, here I was struggling, had hit a rough spot, and I simply sent the sister a text. I said, sis, um, 
can yeah. you refer me to an angel investor? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like really something as simple as that because I literally watched her go from having a booth, a table and a tent to getting a space across the street and really making a million dollars in like six months right before my eyes. She herself could not even know going from a food truck that this was about to be her fate. So I watched it happen. Anyway, I just sent her a text that she know an angel investor that she could refer me to. That was that. She simply replied to me, sis, what do you need? How much money do you need? I sent her the amount on what I was behind. You know, do you know later on that night, that sister was on a plane. By 11 p.m. that night, that sister said, because we have the same landlord. She said, yo, I, I, I sent him, you know, this amount of money. You're good. And so I replied to her like, okay, sis, what are the terms of this loan? Like, what do I need to do? How much time do I have? What do you want? And she simply replied to me, sis, you don't, you don't owe me anything. I mean, I just want you to rebuild. So I don't want anybody to ever say that black women can't work together. Black women can't support each other. And this is a woman that we don't even know each other right. like that. You know what I You're mean? You're in the community, but yeah. That, that have, you know what I mean? But in terms of this is not right, but this is not like a long-term friend. And no questions asked, hands down, she supported me. And even at that time, I didn't know how my business was going to grow into what it is now. You know, I couldn't even see it. I was just trying to keep my doors open. And I had somebody that came and supported me. And so I have to do the same for others. And so working together with other women, like-minded entrepreneurs who are serious about their business, serious about growth and expansion. Even when I decided to open up the store, there were women that supported me. You know, right. this wasn't like a five-year plan to say, okay, well, I'm going to do this and I have this amount of money saved up. No, it was really, I saw an opportunity and on a whim and I had women come and support me, you know, that really didn't even have any idea. This was not their path, but their role literally was to come in and support me for a time. You know, I currently have a business partner now, Ginger Fortune, that has a vegan cosmetic line called Ginger Beauty. Ginger started off having a makeup counter when I first opened up the store and we worked so well together that a year went past and then I offered her to come up and, and join me you know as partner and so she and I are now working together and she helped with the expansion and so we're just growing exponentially but again this is not an old this is not a childhood friend this was a woman that I saw and she looked beautiful and I'm like what do you do what do you and she was like oh I make vegan makeup and from there our relationship grew and now we're business partners and really trying to craft out a vision, you know, for our businesses. So I just wanted to reiterate that fact that black women are doing it and we are working together and we are supporting each other. We're inspiring one another and we are tearing these Even walls this, down and we are making right a here, way. What we're doing is through Sadie, who is my childhood friend, you know, I've known Sadie all, all my life. And I was like, Sadie, yes. she was... <laughs> She said that her cape was made by you. And I was like, okay, well, she, oh, Black yeah. woman is making things. Who's a designer? I need to speak with her on you have to wear something because there's this idea of just going, <laughs> you know, when you go to any store, I mean, honestly, to this day, it's all pretty much white or European adjacent designers. You know, it's still that way to this day. And so I love to speak to women who are who are still making things or still creating or still designing up against the crazy odds of even 2020 even like Kushni, like a lot of black business businesses have 
permanently permanently closed you know and they tried to make masks and PPE yeah. and all of that so yeah. I really appreciate like you said the circle yeah. of support and you know sisterhood being real and it not being you know unfortunately like those housewife shows or however they want to portray us bad girls club that's not the way that it right, normally yeah. usually is we yeah. need each other and we can't really afford to waste time yeah. on on petty stuff but i i really appreciate Absolutely. you and your story yeah. and your um energy today thank you so much for being on oh, behalf thank of you for having we're always me. learning something <laughs> we're out here we're doing things and um I wish you the best and I don't think this will be the last time we speak. Um but as I always say until next time peace. Yes. <laughs> peace.